Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Um, we just wrapped up a series where we were study, studying different themes throughout the book of Mark uh, since January. And so for the next three Sundays, what we're going to be doing is we're going to take a little time to refocus. We're going to talk a little bit about some, some ideas, some concepts, some themes that we've talked about since September as a church family uh, that, that different ones of you at different points have, have throughout the year shared. Man, that sermon... That, that particular theme or that idea that we talked about really challenged me, or I, I think I found something change in my life uh, as a result of that, as I've just been listening to different conversations over the last like three or four months in particular. Uh, I've landed on a few messages that are kind of just taken from this last year that just sort of reframed for where we are now in June. And I just wanna invite us to just refocus as it feels like these are some of the core themes and ideas that Jesus is inviting us to focus on as a community this season. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks is spending a little time refocusing as we go into the summer. And so today I want to talk to you about what committed community looks like from Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. So let's read this. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I just ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see, our minds to understand, our hearts to know and experience what it is you are saying to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be invited by Jesus into something uh, powerful and transformational today. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Uh, there was a man uh, by the name of Alexei de Tocqueville who was sent by the French government to this newly formed country called the United States in the early 1800s. And he was given one task by the, the autocrats and the, the nobility of France Alexi, go over to that place and find out what this thing is they're doing called democracy. What's this all about? And, and so Alexi de Tocqueville not only uh, st- 
studied kind of the government idea of what was going on. He traveled up and down these new 13 states, traveled up and down this newly formed country, trying to understand what it looked like, what democracy looked like in towns and villages and neighborhoods and families. What exactly was this experiment called democracy? And it turned into a two-volume work that you totally want to read by the lake this summer called, that was a joke, it's called Democracy in America. Some of you want to read it by the lake this summer. I know you're out there. Uh, Democracy in America. And, and this made several observations about what life in a democracy was like. But this is probably one of the most stunning. De Tocqueville writes this. The first thing that strikes the observation is an innumerable multitude of men, all equal and alike, incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Each of them living apart is as a stranger to the fate of all the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, he is close to them, but he sees them not. He touches them, but he feels them not. He exists but in himself and for himself alone. And if his kindred still remain to him, he may be said at any rate to have lost his country. What a stunning observation made 200 years ago. It kind of sounds like now, doesn't it? It doesn't really sound any different to me. Perhaps it's, it's more intensified now, but it pretty much sounds exactly the same. And it fascinates me that someone in the very early days of this country made an observation about how there was something in the water, so to speak, of the soil of America that really hasn't changed in 200 years. Something in the air, something in the culture that seemed to disconnect people. And this is borne out to be true. The Survey Center on American Life has said that the percentage of no one with close friends has quadrupled since 1990. The Ipsos survey done in 2018 said that 54% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling that no one knows them well. And psychologist Joshua Coleman, author of Rules of Estrangement, wrote about how cultural shifts in our society have caused people to perceive the function of even family units as, as having fundamentally changed. There used to be, as he says, a bond of mutual duty towards each other, towards family, but now families perceive to be, quote, a launch pad to personal fulfillment. There's more permission in our culture than ever to cut off any kind of relationship, even family relationships, that feel or seem toxic to us. As one young person said to Coleman, my mom is really needy and I just don't need that in my life right now. These types of disconnection, unfortunately, are incredibly common and very familiar. You probably are thinking of a few instances yourself. The pandemic, as you know, had rapidly accelerated this feeling of disconnection. There were entire networks of relationships that vanished overnight. And if they've existed or continued to exist, a lot of them exist now in some kind of disembodied online format. 
Now, if we were to imagine, say, a continuum or a spectrum uh, where on one end there, there was a sense of disconnection that Tocqueville describes that we feel, we experience in our culture, if we were to put that on one side, the world of Acts chapter 2 that we read about this morning would be a mile away, worlds away on the other side. A place, a community of connection, a world of connection, not disconnection. It's a vision of spirit-led, Jesus-shaped community in Acts 2 that we, invites us to not only live in what Jesus is doing with others, but live it out. It is a better way to live, I believe, than the disconnection that Tocqueville observed and that we experience every day. And it sounds amazing in theory, and because you're seated here right now, it can be easy to think, great, check I'm in Christian community, this is good. But did you know a Barna survey done in 2021 said that churchgoers are just as likely to experience intense loneliness as non-churchgoers? So, so if you sitting in the pews isn't going to change the feeling of loneliness, what actually matters? What is going to change it? What actually is going to take us from that place of disconnection to connection? What is going to keep us from being near other people but not even being able to know that they're there to sensing other people being near, perceiving them, knowing and being known? I believe what we need to do as a community to be a committed community is we need to understand and identify and resist three enemies of committed community. If we are going to be able to thrive as a people who are fully known and knowing others, we are going to need to identify, name, and resist these three enemies of committed community. And when we do that, we will have a powerful witness to the world because of our hope, our love, and our generosity to a disconnected world. So I want to talk to you about these three enemies for a few minutes this morning. And this first enemy that I wanna talk to you about is the enemy of cynicism. Cynicism is our enemy because it robs us of hope. It robs us of hope. Now I've said many times I am a recovering cynic, so I speak to myself this morning as I, as I read these words. But I want us to see why cynicism robs us of hope. In Acts 2.44 that we read, look, it says that they were devoted to the teaching of the church leadership. This is not just head knowledge or information because you could come every Sunday and hear me or other people from our team talk and you could just get a lot of good information. But what they were actually doing is life-on-life discipleship, submitting their lives in trust that other people could help them live a better life. They were allowing not only leadership, but community, mutually, that they would speak into each other's lives. Ooh, that's a little uncomfortable. They gathered around the presence of Jesus in worship and prayer at the temple, uh, tangibly around the Lord's Supper, the, the very representation of his body and blood. They were in awe at the miracles that God was doing, the transformation that was happening in people's lives in their midst. In many ways, the bedrock of Christian community is that we are tangibly swept up in the movement of what Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit. But what cynicism does 
is it creates doubt that God is working in a community at all. Cynicism goes, did that person really get healed or is that, did they set this up? It's just like that televangelist that I saw once and it all came out that it was fake. Did so-and-so really change their, their whole life? Did God really turn it around or are they just faking it and they're gonna fall through the cracks like everyone else? What does this pastor want from me? What does this church want from me? See, there's a resistance that comes into us, understandably so, in the culture we live in and the world we live in. There's a resistance that cynicism breeds in us and it keeps us from being interested in even coming into mutual submission to each other, let alone a church leader. Where iron can sharpen iron and we can speak into each other's lives and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure you have my best interests at heart. We're suspicious of leaders. The pastor doesn't know me. Where does he get off saying that? I know you've thought it. It's okay. I forgive you. Create cynicism. Like, is God actually at work here? Is God really doing anything? Especially when we get tired. God's not actually doing anything. What's happening? And when we doubt and we get cynical like that, and I've experienced this in my own life, we, we start to separate ourselves from the transformation God's doing in other people. And we're, we're essentially keeping Jesus at arm's length. It's leaving us unchanged. And then we go, see, community doesn't work. But we never truly engaged in it in the first place because our cynicism was robbing us of the transformational hope of Jesus. Now, we have good reason to be cynical. Don't you have good reason to be cynical? I know you do. I know many of you do. You've been hurt. You're, you have a reason that you have self-protected. And, and, and our self-protection is often a healthy mechanism that God gives us to say, here and no further. But that doesn't mean everyone's out to hurt you. And, and what happens when we've been wounded is we pull away not only from the people who could hurt us, we pull away from the people that can help us. I love the, the words of, of Rich Velotis. He says this, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. There's no way around it. Healing might not come from the community where the wounding took place, but community is needed for healing nonetheless. What if the antidote to your wounding, what if the antidote to the pain you have experienced from others was leaning into the very thing you have avoided? What if God wants to do in community the thing that you were killed in community for? What if God wants to do in a new place something that you longed for in another place? What if God is trying to woo you and invite you out of cynicism so that you do not lose hope? So you could step in. How could, it, how could you do this? What could it look like? Begin to step in. Maybe ask for help, ask for prayer in that area that's like, I don't know if God's actually gonna do anything about this. Tell someone your story, get connected. Hop into a group, hop into any opportunity. Be aware of how cynicism wants to rob you of hope. 
and put yourself in places to hear stories of hopefulness. Put yourself in places to say, God, do that in me. You did that in them and I celebrate that. Would you do that in me? We need to be in community because that is where the transformation is happening. And if we stay away from it, if we stay away from community, it'll kill us. It'll exhaust us. And I don't want that for any of you. Do you want to live a hope-filled life? You can answer if you want. You're like, no. You're like, no, I don't. I know you want to live a hope-filled life. Live resisting cynicism. Resist cynicism. Trust that God is on the move. Second enemy to identify this morning is the enemy of individualism. Individualism is our enemy because it robs us of love. It robs us of love. Look again at the text with me. It says that all the believers were in the same place, had everything in common. Every day they met together with singular purpose. How many of you are feeling uncomfortable already? They didn't come with their own agenda. They were eating meals in each other's homes constantly. How many of you were tired already thinking about that? They shared life together regularly, not like once a month, like daily. They were open, they were real, they were honest. There was no pretense in these gatherings. At times, people would probably get really annoyed with each other. Just think about it for a minute. You're meeting, you're seeing these people all the time. Like, you know your, your family. If you, if you live with a family now, or think about the family you grew up with, think, think about how comfortable you got with that group of people where you would just be like, shut up. You're just done. You're just done. I'm tapped out. Go away. Leave me alone. Can you imagine saying that to someone sitting next to you right now in church? Because you'd be like, oh, like I, couldn't, I couldn't say that. But you start hanging around and doing life with them constantly. You might feel comfortable enough saying that. You're, the real you is going to start to come out. God forbid. <laughs> or you're going to fake it for so long you'll get exhausted. And then you'll leave to perform in another community. So they get annoyed with each other. I don't want to share a meal with them. I'm fighting with them last week. They said something really hurtful. I'm not going, I'm not going to see them. I don't want to see them right now. It's the last person I want to be around. I need some me time. It's self-care time. Now, I'm all about healthy boundaries. If you know me, we teach like emotionally healthy spirituality stuff here all the time. I'm all about uh, honoring your limits and things like that. Absolutely, we're human beings, we're finite. But a lot of times, let's be honest, we've started to love the, the self-care language, the boundary language, because it gives us an excuse to get out of things that are hard. Let's be honest. It can be really good and it can be really bad for us to use that language. And I think a lot of times our culture is not actually uh, pointing us towards silence and solitude, which is something Jesus invites us into, to get alone with Jesus, be with Jesus, to slow down. Jesus is inviting us into that, but the, our culture doesn't invite us into solitude and silence. Our culture invites us into isolation and individualism. 
and they're very different things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. But let him who is in, or excuse me, let him who is not in community beware of being alone. If you are not in community, beware of being alone. And, and this community in Acts 2 was very aware that they could not be alone, especially when they had an issue with someone else in the community. They had to go deal with it. They had to figure out how to deal with this with this person and deal with it in a loving way. They had to figure out how they were not going to let resentment isolate them. You know, wolves just wait around for sheep to wander off on their own and then they pounce. They don't go after the herd. It's too many. There's sheep dogs and a shepherd around. The wolves wait until someone gets isolated. So as Bonhoeffer said, if you're not in community, beware of being alone. Just like this church in Acts, they had to learn how to be vulnerable. They had to learn how to share the stuff of their lives in such a way where then people got to choose on their own terms how they were going to respond to the stuff that was shared. That's terrifying. Can you imagine just putting something out there like that? This is vulnerable. It's a little scary. And then someone could just say, you are just like over-exaggerating. That'd be really hurtful. You need someone to just validate how hard something's been. They're not, they don't have to agree with how everything's gone, but just like, man, it seems like this is really heavy for you. It seems like this is really scary for you. And we just need those people to, to be in that place. But here's what happens in committed community, even as risky and vulnerable as that is, even as it's possible you could get a judgmental response, even as it's possible that maybe they're gonna push you away because it's just too much, it may be the biggest thing that's true is that all of those things are probably way bigger in your head than they are in reality. And when you begin to put that out there, here's the beauty of what committed community does. It creates space for you to share the real stuff of your life. And when you share that, you find that no matter what you share, people are still there sitting at the table with you. Now, they might feel uncomfortable. They might not know what to do with everything, that you said, they might've been put off by something you said, but here's the point, they're still at the table with you. And when you experience that, when you've really shared something like, I've never shared this with anyone before, and that person's still at the table with you, you are experiencing real love. That's love, to share the, the deepest, darkest stuff of your life and to have someone still sitting there saying, okay, I'm still here. I'm still with you. Where do we go from here? How can I help you? Where do you want to go from here? What do you think Jesus is doing in this? You feel love. You experience love in that space. 1 John 1.7 says, if we are living in the light, i.e. being vulnerable in all aspects of our life, if we are living in the light, not as individuals, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. Now, it should have said, then we'll have fellowship with God. But it doesn't say that, does it? When we're living in the light, as God's in the light, we have fellowship with God's family. 
I cannot tell you how freeing it has been in my life to do, I've told you this before, I've done life confessions with friends, with good friends, and and we've done life confessions with each other. I cannot tell you how powerful an experience that is to confess to someone who's following Jesus and then receive forgiveness from that person in the name of Jesus. It's so powerful. And, and, And there is an acceptance, there's a love in that space that welcomes us in, doesn't push us away. We don't have to fake who we are anymore. We don't have to wear the masks. We don't have to do that thing where I'm like, I hope someone likes me. In committed community, we're not a bunch of individuals showing up to all the things and then going our own way. Maybe like doing a little bit of vulnerability about how this week was just kind of hard. But really sharing the stuff of our life because we're saying, I don't know what to do and I don't know if you can help me either, but I just need someone to sit at the table with me. That's committed community that resists individualism. You see, what individualism has done is it's distorted our theology to the point where we believe that we can follow Jesus, but it's not really a big deal if I'm part of the church. It's not a big deal if I'm, not, if I'm in community, if I have regular people that are following Jesus that I'm doing life with. That doesn't matter so much as long as I, I love God and I'm following God. But, but here's the thing, biblically speaking, this is what the scriptures say, is that Christ is the head, Jesus is the head, and his body is the church. So if you're like, I'm gonna follow Jesus, that's great, but I don't know about the whole community thing. It's like asking for John the Baptist's head on a platter like Herod did. It's like, oh yeah, I got Jesus, I'm good. Walking around. But here's the thing, it's like... Uh, they always go together, peanut butter and jelly, right? Yeah, they're, they're two distinct things, but you always put peanut butter and jelly. You're weird if you don't put peanut butter and jelly this morning. I'm sorry. That's as judgmental as I'll be. That's as judgmental as I'll be. But you know what I'm saying. But like, that's, this is like what Jesus and the church are like. It's kind of like, where's the peanut butter? Or where's the jelly? Like, what are you doing? And we walk around like, I got Jesus. I'm following Jesus. done is you've actually cut yourself off from the source of those that are supposed to extend the love of Jesus to you. His body, his hands, his feet, that's you. So much of how we experience the love of Jesus in this life and in this world, yes, in prayer and silence and solitude with the presence of Jesus himself, but so much of how we're meant to experience the love of Jesus is, look around. I really mean it, look around. Look around at everyone. This is how you are meant to experience the love of Jesus. And I know you're like uncomfortable to look around. I know it's uncomfortable to look around. You're like, whoa, they're reading my, they can see in my soul. I know it's so terrifying. It's vulnerable. I know I've been there. It does get easier. It's not going to be terrifying for the rest of your life, but you have to practice it. You have to practice resisting individualism and stepping in to vulnerability because if you continue to give in to individualism, you will be cut off from the love that you are meant to receive and feel and experience on a daily basis. I do not want you to be robbed of love and isolated from love. Do you want to be isolated from love? No. 
I don't want to be isolated from love either. But we have to begin to be vulnerable, to do life with in the uncomfortable spaces, in the inconvenient spaces. It's a hard shift. I'll just say this. This is not in my notes. It is a hard shift to begin to prioritize life together when our calendars get really full. We just have to name it. But God, we are dying out there without real love. It's up to you. What do you want? I'm not saying it's not hard, but man, we need to resist the individualism that is tearing us away and isolating us from love. If you're tired, if you're exhausted, if you're weary, if you feel all alone, maybe it's because you are alone. Don't isolate yourself from love. Cynicism robs us of hope, isolation. Individualism isolates us from love. Finally, the third enemy to committed community is consumerism. Consumerism is our enemy because it numbs us to need. It numbs us to need. This is perhaps the hardest and most touchy of the three enemies, which is a sign that it runs the deepest and it has the strongest hold on us. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, consumerism is, in a lot of ways, the currency of our day. To some extent, the, 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 vis- the visual of our upward mobility is communicated to other people through our purchasing power. Our ability to buy more things communicates something or telegraphs something to people in the world around us on some level. We really live in a world of things. Manufactured goods are now made to break so we can purchase more things. How long did your last phone last you? We consume things and we consume content, especially like millennials and younger. The term binge watching is not only ubiquitous in this day, it's actually kind of endearing. Oh, you binge watched a show this weekend, that's fun. We move from event to event, program to program, purchase to purchase, content to content. And as one writer said, we are now no longer human beings, but consuming beings. You know, billions of dollars are spent every year to keep it this way. In 2021, $300 billion was spent on advertising products and subscriptions in the United States alone. That's a 19% increase on the previous year. During the pandemic, Amazon reported a profit increase, profit, not revenue, of 220%. That's $8.1 billion. And then I was hearing, you were probably hearing this too, as the pandemic trailed off, people were kind of getting back to normal life. They're going, why did I buy all this stuff? There were articles about it in the New York Times and other outlets just talking about, like, we just went on this crazy random, like, binge buying stuff, and we don't know what to do with it. There's whole movements now about trying to donate it or give it to other people or try and return it. No one knows what to do with it. They just, on autopilot, just started buying the stuff. 
The U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics said that during the pandemic season of the last couple of years, uh, spending on food, apparel and services, alcoholic beverages, entertainment have all gone up dramatically in the last two years. You'd probably believe it. You've probably been a part of it. I've probably been a part of it too. Now, why do I share all of these statistics? What's the point? It's because I believe in the last few years in particular that I said the the water, the stuff that we're all drinking kind of leans us towards uh, cynicism and individualism and consumerism as it is, right? But I believe what's happened in the last few years in particular has fundamentally changed the way we think about using our time, our money, and our resources like never before. We are seeing ourselves more and more as consuming beings, not human beings. And our behavior is agreeing with that, whether we might cognitively disagree with it. Consumerism, what it does is it invites us to collect things, to find comfort in things uh, and content, and it's at the expense of being attentive to our fellow humans. Here's what I mean by that. This explains and is in large part why uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine started to lose interest after 100 days in the news cycle. We need new content. That's why back in August, polling started to show America's support for the war in Ukraine was starting to dip dramatically. We need new content. I'm bored with that. You see, even something as significant as current events, real things affecting real people around the world, it's just more consumerism stuff. It's just more things to consume. It's more content. It's just another thing that I can look at, huh, that's interesting, and dispose of. I think the, the statistic I heard recently was something like, uh, nowadays we see in, in a day, or maybe it's like in a month or something like that, uh, more bits of information or news story than people uh, like 100 years ago would see in their entire lifetime. The rate of content, the rate of things, the the rate that we are consuming at is unbelievable, and I would say unsustainable. If this continues to happen, if we let the biggest stories of our day become bite-sized content that we get bored with after a while, then how much more is this happening with the little things in our own communities? How much more is this happening with the little seemingly insignificant things in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our family, in our church community? It's not on... BuzzFeed, it's not showing up on Twitter, it's not in the news headline, I'm not going to pay attention to it. It's not even content at that point, why would I bother? Now I know we don't think that, but we behave that. And that's what really is important to us to learn and understand. But here is what's happening. This is what the cultural flow is of consumerism. This is what we're being pulled into and it's numbing us to real human need around us. But in Acts 2, something completely different is at work. The Holy Spirit is radically reshaping people towards each other. The Holy Spirit is radically reshaping how we see each other for who we really are as people, as human beings. And we start to find that they're behaving radically differently. 
They're holding everything in common. They're selling their possessions and property and distributing all the money to anyone who needed it. They're eating all their meals together with joy and, here's a key word, simplicity. How many of us are living in simplicity and still find us filled with joy? You see, they weren't simply making a donation to the church every time they were there because that's what they're supposed to do. No, they were doing something entirely different. I love what the theologian Willie James Jennings says about this passage. He says, this is intensified giving. This is feverish giving, he says. A new kind of giving is exposed at this moment where the followers will give themselves to one another. The possessions will follow. Jennings notes here something that I think we need to grab a hold of, that it's not about making sure that I do enough or just enough. It's a question of, are you allowing the spirit of God to reorient your behavior so that you give your entire self? All the possessions follow easily after that. It's a question of where you are. Jennings notes that in, in, in this time, in Acts, it was not unusual to give large sums of money, even be very generous, but there was always a limit. This was a posture of completely giving their lives. People ask me all the time, hey, pastor, you know, I wanna start giving, like what's an appropriate amount to give? And we don't prescribe a number. Like if you're one of our members or partners, as we call them here, like we, uh, we don't say like, well, it has to be at least this much. We don't do that. We want you to pray and ask Jesus, what are you inviting me into, Jesus? I'd rather he give you that number than me. It's probably a lot bigger if he asks you, I'm gonna be honest, than if it's me. And I've told you the story about how we were in a season, my wife and I, where, where I was going to go into this ministry space where I was going to make very little money. And we felt God called us in that season to increase how much we give percentage-wise of our income. It was terrifying. But Jesus called us into that for a season. There was something that we were giving that was more than just a bank account. It was more than time. It was more than calendar. Jesus was asking us, and he is asking us as a community, if you're going to resist consumerism, you have to be willing to give your very self over to the community. Everyone's like, nope, too far. I'm going home. Done. But here's what you miss if you do not resist community. You are numbed to the needs of those around you. And you're like, no, people donate to the Red Cross and do that all the time. Pay attention to how all of that gets introduced. There'll be a big spike in giving when a crisis first happens, and then it dies down. It's all content-driven. It's all about making you feel good. It's all about being a part of a, an event. It's all content-driven. Give to it. There's need. But pay attention to what's happening there. This is something very, uh, I'll use the, uh, the theological term for it. This is very unsexy to give like this. It's not cool because it's a daily grind. It, it's the daily inconvenient, I need this right now. Can you help? It's the, I'm gonna embarrass you for a second, Nyes. It's the them texting us, hey, can we watch your kids so you guys can go out on a date? Out of nowhere. It's that kind of thing where you're just like, 
And we had to swallow our pride for a minute and be like, oh, I feel bad that they've got more kids than us. Like, I feel so bad that they're doing this. We had to swallow our pride and say, yeah, we actually really need that. But some of us are better at hiding our need than others, and it's going to require that, that vulnerability we talked about earlier. But man, what would happen if we started radically giving of ourselves, giving of our bank accounts, giving of our calendars, giving of our possessions to the community? It's going to rail against that spirit of consumerism that I'm talking about, but it, it should because it is an enemy to truly committed community that says, well, what if I need this later? Man, and in the process of living open-handed, of living generously, of giving of your very self to others, you find what the followers in Acts 2 found. They were incredibly joyful. There's a, uh, several novels and, and things kind of written in the, the postmodern uh, time period of the last, last like 20 years. And, and a lot of them have these characters in the book that are the materialists. They're the person who has more than everyone else. And in every single one of these books, they're always the most miserable person in the book. But what if we were to be a joyful people? A people unburdened because we found joy living simply by giving of ourselves to each other. So does consumerism have a hold on you? Is it, is it numbing you to the needs of community? What about individualism? Is it isolating you from experiencing love? Is cynicism robbing you of the hope of a transformational life in Jesus? You feel stuck this morning after all that. You feel a little stuck like the world's just too much. I don't know how I can do this. Just remember the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He said, take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. I've overcome cynicism. Take heart. I have overcome individualism. Take heart. I have overcome consumerism. So as the the team comes and, and we close... Um, just one kind of big practical step worked out in three ways. How do you begin to resist these? Very simply, you need to get in community. Get in community. When the invitations come, try and say yes. And if you can't say yes because you already have another engagement, say, I can't do this. When's the next one? I'm putting it on my calendar right now. Go that extra little bit to do that. Here's what I mean by getting community. If you're gonna use it as a way to resist cynicism, get in community and begin to hear other people's stories of transformation. And instead of going, huh, God really do that? Begin to say, God, do it in my life. Celebrate them and their stories. Get in community to resist individualism and find someone you can share your story with. Share the stuff Get in community to resist consumerism. Give yourself, give your money, give your time, give your possessions to the kingdom work before you. I like to say to people that if 
following Jesus is not easy. It's quite demanding. But there's a ton of joy. There's so much fullness. There's so much love. There's so much life. So what I want to do this morning, for a practical reason, I believe we're, we're actually running kind of low on communion. So we're going to hold off on taking this together because I would hate for some of us to partake and some of us not. Um, but I just want to wait for the body and the blood himself, Lord Jesus, for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to just bring the presence of Jesus before us before we go to worship. Some of you have maybe one, two, or all three of these enemies that you are just getting kicked in the butt by right now. And you're just tired. You're tired of being hopeless. You're tired of being unloved. You're tired of being numb. And I just want to invite you, whatever it is, maybe it's two or all three of them, Jesus is inviting you into something right now and I do not want you to miss it. He's inviting you into his family. You're already in his family. Like you've said yes to Jesus if you're following him. Like you're not positionally, spiritually, nothing's changing, but like you're not actually living out the thing that you are. And Jesus is saying, would you just come home? There's some brothers, there's some sisters that I would love you to get to know and to be known by. Oh, Jesus, we, we just ask right now that you would break cynicism. Break cynicism in us in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that you would break our pride, break our fear that keeps us from being vulnerable so that we can experience your real, powerful, transformational love. Lord Jesus, break our consumerism that keeps us from having a posture of giving ourselves and everything that we have. And Lord, we do all this because we want to live life to the full, but we know there is a world out there that is desperate to see something they're not going to be convinced by wise and persuasive words. They need a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in powerful ways through community, through changing the way we behave, the way we interact with each other, the way we respond to need. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that people would be drawn to the real thing. So if one of those is, is where you're at, every eyes are closed, heads are bowed, if you're ready to just take that step and resist one of these enemies, I just want to invite you, would you put your hand up just as a sign before Jesus saying, I'm done with that. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. We just pray your protection for those that are raising their hands right now, Lord. 
work powerfully in them, Lord. I pray that they would have avenues and opportunities and they would recognize the invitations when they come and they wouldn't shy away from them or make excuses. It's time for something different in your life. It's time for something new and fresh. So Jesus, we pray blessing upon this church family that we would become a committed community can be a witness to West Milford and the world around us. Would you stand as we worship? Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.